All right. Are you ready? Yes. You always look so scared. <laughs> I am. It's just, it's just I'm you not and used me. To, I know. I'm not used to doing such unscripted things. <laughs> it's just you and me talking. I know. <laughs> unscripted things like talk, like having a conversation with your daughter. Right. But it's also going out on the airwaves. <clears throat> yeah. Heavily edited. <laughs> Right, but you're not adding stuff, you're just taking stuff out. True, very true. Hmm. All right, it was probably just somebody dropping something off. Iggy, hold on, let me go check this out really quick. Okay, I'm gonna run to the bathroom while you do that. Okay. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Your On Mute. This is Pastor Elise and Pastor Mary. How's it going today, Mom? Uh, pretty good. It's a little bit of a sad day. Um, this is uh, the 31st anniversary of your Uncle Ty's death from AIDS. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we just kind of remember that whole part of our history in the world and, uh, you know, people that didn't make it. Yeah, uh, that was uh, that was quite a that was quite a time. And you think about the whole COVID epidemic and um you know, at least we got a vaccine for this. And, right. uh, but, you know, in the AIDS community, there never has been a cure. There's never been a vaccine. There was, gosh, just a lot of shaming of people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and just prejudice again, oh, against yeah. folks. So it's a lot, it's really a lot to remember. It is. Yeah. I mean, that was quite a time and, and, you know, they're, they've definitely come a long way in terms of medications and prevention, but it's still very much an issue mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't remember is still very much an issue. Um, you know, eighties and nineties culture, you know, every celebrity event, there was people with red ribbons and there was constant things mm-hmm. going on and movies being made about it. And, you know, we are lucky that now we're in a time where someone can publicly, you know, there's a lot of celebrities that have come out as HIV positive and are, you know, praised for their bravery versus being shamed. And so, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it is, it is a sad day. That was, I was pretty young, but I have a lot of memories about that time and, and watching uncle Ty pass away and, um, right. that got 31 years. That's pretty crazy. That, that was a really long time ago. Goodness. Well, and also, a, yeah. And I think it also helps us to remember that, um, a lot of folks still don't talk about relatives that they had that died mm-hmm. of this disease, but, you know, every time as a pastor that you bring it up, um, that, like I talked about, I talked about Ty in a sermon, not well, kind of about his AIDS history, but, um, just talking about him as a gay man, which yeah. I think was a little bit of a shocker for some folks in the congregation, but, you know, then the number of people that came up to me one-on-one afterwards or during the week who said, yeah, I have a brother who's gay and here's what's going on with him, you know, or here's what's going on in our family. Or then you discover if you talk about AIDS, people will come up to you and say, my uncle died of AIDS too. Yeah. And, but normally they don't, you know, they don't talk about it. Um, No. Yeah. It, it can be really surprising about how, how much people still have issues talking about those things and, and even Mm -hmm. recognizing that they either, you know, I think if, I think anyone really would not have much of a problem finding either a family member or someone close to them who 
either themselves lost somebody during the AIDS pandemic or, you know, knew someone close to them who lost somebody. Um, it was, a uh, it was so, so pervasive and just, it was everywhere. I mean, because, but... you know, the, the administration at the time, the Reagan administration, for one thing, completely denied that it was even an issue, you know, did not, did not change that, um, that, you know, uh, vocabulary of gay mm-hmm. cancer. And, um, you know, honestly, in so many ways, it was the lesbian community that stepped up the most yes, and, and, and cared for these men, um, as they were dying. And, and, uh, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't just gay men. It was, it was, it was drug users. It was people mm-hmm. that got blood transfusions, um, right. you know, babies born to mothers that were HIV positive. I mean, there's, you know, I think there's also still just a lack of education of how it can be transmitted and it's not always linked to some, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, risky sexual behavior, you know, there's a lot of other things. And, and even if it was sexually transmitted, it's like, that shouldn't be something that's shamed when you, when you talk about administrations denying yes. uh, pandemics and, and terrible language around that pandemic, I mean, uh, denying that COVID was a thing and then letting people call it the China virus. Mm-hmm. I mean, history repeats itself, doesn't it? It's so sad. And, and um, I think that brings us to our topic for the day, too, um, just yeah. talking about um, social justice and, mm-hmm. um, and the church and protest. So why don't, you, why don't you kick us off on that? Yeah, I mean, for me, especially being fresh out of seminary, uh, I've got a very interesting take on, on this topic. And I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, as you are someone who lived through uh, while you were very young, you lived through the the civil rights and Vietnam era, which was kind of for a long time seen as one of the most kind of dramatic and tense times in American culture and American politics. The things that have been happening in the last five years, uh, you know, I've heard from a lot of folks in my congregation and just in general that, um, you know, the 60s and 70s have nothing on what's going on you know, right now in, in terms of civil unrest. Now, I, I, I think in a lot of ways that could be true. I mean, in other ways, it's just not, we're not seeing the, at least we're not hearing about the, if there are any assassinations happening, they're a lot sneakier now than just shooting someone out in public, but um, we are. Well, seeing... but that's a, I think that's exactly the type of thing that is happening is that mm-hmm. it's not the, it's not the black leaders who are being, who are being shot or, or others as well. It's just everyday folk being targeted. Yeah, absolutely. That has its own kind of uh, tragedy uh, and difference. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing is so complex and it's, you know, there's so many different angles from which to look at it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's, and, you know, not to open a, a can of conspiracy worms, but there have been shocking deaths in in the communities of community organizers people dying very young mm-hmm. um, mysteriously being killed i know there are quite a few folks who led the uh protests in ferguson um who have died since and they were not a lot of them were young and mm-hmm. uh some of their some of their deaths were a little bit mysterious so you know these things are are still happening and and whether it's just from the emotional toll that doing that kind of work takes on somebody to, I mean, we saw 
in uh, Portland and, and really everywhere where a lot of George Floyd protests were happening last summer, um, people got hurt. People got shot point blank with rubber bullets, real bullets, right. uh, you know, smoke canisters fired way too close to people. People were beaten. Um, you know, the violence uh, that comes in, you know, hand in hand with protests and civil disobedience is still very much there. Uh, the risk is still there. Especially, Um, I know I I took part or I was present at quite a few uh, protests. Actually, the the organizers in Chattanooga did a great job. They we ended up being the longest running consecutive uh, movement um, last summer. I think it was something like there was a rally or a march every night for 51 days, um, mm-hmm. if, if not more. And we usually had some kind of clergy representation at these. And we really took it upon ourselves to be kind of the peacekeepers, the bridge builders more than anything. But I just remember the tension and the anxiety of the protesters and also the police officers who were there, both uh, protectors and enforcers, you know, so that was a tricky line for them to walk because they were trying to make sure protesters stayed on the, on the designated route. But then at the same time, they were who were being protested against. Um, Well, at least the system they were a part of was. And so there was just so much easy anger. And so the clergy, we all just kind of tried to diffuse a lot of situations, but I mean, I, there were moments of fear. Um, you know, there was a, at one point we had kind of gotten, uh, shepherded into a corner of the city where you really could not escape. Um, and it was almost like the, the police were kind of closing in on us. And then someone tried to like tear a policeman's belt off and it just got, pretty, pretty crazy, pretty quickly. And, and so, um, but yeah, so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, kind of our, our modern take, uh, on kind of the church and protest, but then, you know, there's a lot of history to be told. And one of the coolest things is kind of the, the background of the word Protestant. And, uh, so mom, you want to, you want to mm-hmm. kind of, uh, educate us on that? Well, I, you know, and that comes from, you know, 16th century um, Martin Luther, who had difficulties with the institutional church, if you will, feeling that it had really fallen away from the central gospel message in, in what it was doing. And um, as a lot of our listeners probably know, Luther was not to break away from the Catholic Church, but hopefully to reform it from within, Mm -hmm. which sometimes in protest movements, that's what you want to do. So you're, you know, you're protesting against certain, um, uh, you know, difficult, difficult situations or things you just think are wrong. Yeah. Um, You know, because we all get off track (laughs) and institutions get off track as well. And, and how do they get back on track? Um, But ultimately, um, you know, Luther and these Protestants um, ended up having to form a different church uh, because the, it just the reform from within just was not going to happen. And that wasn't a happy thing for them. That was a sad thing for them. Yeah. And so um, 
so where, you know, where is the, uh, the pastoral protesting uh, happening? And boy, you know, I started just kind of Googling some articles on um, clergy and protesting. Did you, were and you Googling while I was talking? No, I Googled before we got on. Mm. But I just wanted to see what would come up. And um, interestingly, you know, the the historic African-American church in America um, has a long history because they are a minority community. Uh, Mm -hmm. Protesting and political speech is just built into who they are. Mm-hmm. But it's political speech that's tied to scripture, you know, it's tied to the gospel. Um, so if they're going to say we need to do this or that, um, or our government should do this or that, they're going to be saying, and here's why from a scriptural perspective. Yeah. So, you know, in minority communities, um, that was very much built in for historic white communities. It was just seen as wrong. And, you know, most white pastors, I can't speak for the Catholic church. um, They sometimes have more of a protesting side than Protestant, oddly. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, primarily in, you know, Central and South America, if you think of Oscar Mm -hmm. Romero and and those and those figures. Yeah, definitely. And in in big and in big urban environments. So in Chicago, there were. Um, celebrity priests still are. Uh-huh. I think there's one guy, I can't remember what his name is. I'll probably think of it in a little while. Yeah. But um, he was regularly on the local news, which in Chicago, local news is a big deal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Lester Holt, hello. Right. Uh, he came from there. <laughs> yep. And, um, and so they were just known to always be speaking out against injustices. And that was part of who they were. That was part of their ministry. I'm sure that guy took a lot of flack for it on some level, but he's, oh yeah, hung, he's hung in there for decades doing that. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, as, as a person, you know, in the age group, so, so I'm 65. So just a little bit too young still to have been in the heart of being like a college student in mm-hmm. Vietnam protest or certainly a civil rights movement, all that was kind of over. And yeah. Um, yeah. white, most for the most part, white churches were um, kind of outspoken about the fact that, hey, hey, we don't mix religion and politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the older I got and the more experience that I had, I would think, you know, well, why not? I mean, Jesus mixed religion and politics all the time. Oh, yeah. But, the gospel is I, very political. Right. But contextually, we are part of the dominant culture. So the dominant culture doesn't want to speak against a society that benefits them. Right. Right? Yeah, exactly. We're not, we're trying to, to keep it all good and all together and, and pretend like, you know, America's the greatest country in the world, no matter what. And, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody can pull themselves up by their bootstraps if they just try like we did and and all of that. So false. Oh, yeah. um, But it was pretty, um, most white pastors would not stick their necks out to go to a, a protest rally, or certainly you maybe could get away with that if you stayed out of the way of the camera. Right. Out of the TV camera. But, yeah. You know, you would not say any 
anything that could be considered to peace and justice, if you will, to change agent Mm -hmm. um, from the pulpit or, you know, in a Bible study or anything like that. It was, was, and so certainly an argument can be made to say, well, then you're just not very brave, are you? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, on one hand, that's probably true. I have rationalized that to myself, although I'm much more active than um, I was in my younger years. Yeah. Also feels like like more crap has happened too. Right. I mean, in um, after George Floyd's death um, in early June, the community, mostly the African-American community, along with kind of white allies on Hilton Head Island, where I was serving, Mm -hmm. we decided almost at the last minute to try to have a rally. And here we are, we're a resort island. You know, the town is not going to be supportive of hundreds of people coming together in public doing Mm -hmm. a protest. Right. So I was, I was one of the few clergy that was actually a part of that planning group. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't mean white clergy. I mean, clergy period. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, we were, we just put out an invite on Facebook and hoped that maybe 400 people would come and we mm-hmm. had a thousand. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, uh, George, George Floyd's murder really did break open a mm-hmm. lot of things. I think, um, you know, and I don't necessarily think it was his murder alone. You know, I mean, these, these all the, these murders of, of, people of color all seem to always happen in clumps or at least get publicized in clumps. I mean, it was Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. It was like, boom, boom, boom. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been, you know, Philando Castile and, and just, you know, all of these, all of these deaths have seen, have seemed to just really pile on and strike a chord with a lot of people. And I think for a long time, kind of protest and civil disobedience was seen as kind of something for a very select group, a very select brave group of people to do. And while that's still true, I think, and this, this is dangerous and good, but protesting has become very mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes there's this, it's getting easier in a lot of ways to jump into these issues and speak to these issues without as much risk But at the Mm -hmm. same time, you know, that you have to be very careful about um, being genuine and and where it's coming from and and how much you really are willing to to put on the line. It's interesting because, you know, in the civil rights era, it was primarily clergy of color led by, Mm -hmm. you know, Martin Luther King Jr. And what I found out recently, and I'm actually kind of embarrassed to admit that it was recently that I found this out, but you know, his his letter from a Birmingham jail was inspired by an article that was in the Birmingham newspaper from white clergy basically mm-hmm. saying, hey, Martin, um, if you could not bring your confrontation here, like that would be great. Like, please leave. Mm-hmm. And this is after he made a call to all clergy, but especially white clergy to stand up with him. And they basically said, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was so disappointing. And he has this great quote that talks about how he's more scared of a white moderate 
than he was of a radical. He's like, I, I can see the radical and I can see their hatred towards me and I know to stay away or whatever, but the white moderate is more scary because mm-hmm. they're sitting back and they're just not doing anything, right. um, and, which and is they want you, They want you to play nice. Yeah. Uh, to uh, just, you know, let things, let things take their own sweet time. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and he, he just spoke against that. I know. And, and it, and it led to some of his most prophetic writing, um, you know, and, and turned into a book. I mean, it's the letter from Birmingham jail, but it's, it's quite a letter. It is quite a sure. letter. <laughs> well, he didn't have anything else to do. He was sitting right. there. Exactly. I was gonna say, you think about, you know, all the letters that Paul wrote from prison and Mm -hmm. and how, and how prophetic some of them uh, were. So, and I mean, heck Nelson Mandela wrote quite a, quite a few things in his prison cell too. Maybe there's something to it. That's right. Um, Imposed solitude. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things I'd like to do is just say just a little bit about how I feel like I have tried to manage being prophetic and being pastoral at the same time. And then I'd like for you to talk about what your seminary experience was like with the protesting community. Does that sound okay? Yeah, sure. I mean, I do want to point out that you never actually answered the question I asked earlier about the uh, root of Protestant. Uh, all you said was the, um, origin century and you mentioned Martin Luther, but what I was looking for pastor Mary was (laughs) that as the Lutherans were, um, you know, really pushing back against the institution that was the Catholic church, they were described as as Protestants basically because of their protests, and so the root of our of our word Protestant is actually protest. And I think that in a lot of ways, we need to put the protest back into Protestant. Um, we are forgetting our roots in that way quite a bit. And and it's hard. You, you touched on this as well. I mean, it's hard to fight the institution when you're such a big part of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the you know, white Christian church is such an institution in this country and an un, uh, one that's not trusted. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when I, the first rally I went to, uh, last summer, a black lives matter rally in response to George Floyd's death. Uh, the moment we rolled up, there was about, we were all coming from, a, a prayer gathering that we, we had had. And so all the clergy that were there that were going to join the, the rally in the March, we just all walked together. And there was probably about maybe 12 of us, you know, white and black, uh, Christian and Jew, um, you know, just kind of the, the interfaith faith leaders uh, in Chattanooga. Well, you know, a small, a small part of us. Well, it was very obvious to see when we came up because we had stoles and clerical collars and prayer shawls and all these different things on. And uh, the primary organizer sprinted towards us and essentially demanded that we leave. And we were all just kind of dumbfounded. And we were like, what? And she was like, this is not happening so that you can get on television. And, and it, it, it really broke my heart that that was the first instinct. And granted this, and this person could have had experiences with church leaders that, you know, really were just trying to grab the mic and look cool. So, you know, I, I, I do want to credit 
or get, validate her personal experience. But I, I, I was very sad that instead of thinking, wow, there, those are some, those people have serious influence in this community. That's so cool that they're here joining us, you know, with all these other people. I mean, there were hundreds of people at this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, she saw us as a threat and, and a threat basically of taking away the spotlight where it should be, which was, which was on our fight mm-hmm. for, you know, justice within our, our, our judicial system and how, you know, our police forces view people of color and just the systematic racism happening. And so, you know, we explained to her that we were not there for media attention, that we were there to just support the rally in any way we could. And she allowed us to stay. And we basically got put in charge of kind of just monitoring things. Um, And we did end up kind of tailing this group of people that were kind of known white supremacists in the community, uh, just kind of keeping an eye on it, making sure nothing was instigated. We found out much later that they actually did have weapons in their backpacks, um, which was a pretty terrifying realization, but mm. luckily nothing, nothing happened that night, but we continued to show up because we really did want to show that, you know, we were there for the right reasons. And while the church as a whole might not be stepping up in the ways we want it to, there are those of us in leadership that do believe in justice in the biblical way or in, in, in terms of the gospel and do want to carry out Jesus's mission of caring for the poor and those that society pushes to the side. And, you know, it's my hope that at least in my lifetime, I can see, I'll see a little bit of the attitude towards the institutional church change. And, and we kind of start gaining back some ground, but you know, that does kind of lead to that idea of being pastoral versus prophetic. And I had a seminary professor, uh, Dr. Richard Perry, who talk about a whew, talk, talk about a, a guy that worked for social justice. I mean, right. he, he's got a resume, you know, as, as long as I am tall in that arena. But, you know, so we really took to heart his advice on this. And, and he, I think he saw, you know, it, this was my first year of seminary. I think he saw within our group that there was a lot of anger and a lot of um, uh, desire to make big change. And the only way we were kind of doing it at the time was by going to as many protests as we could, participating in civil disobedience and all these other things. And, you know, in one of our classes towards the end of the year, he said something that has really stuck with me for a long time. And he said, Your primary job as a leader in your community will be discerning when to be prophetic and when to be pastoral. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have different gifts. You know, some people are just going to be the ones in front of the camera. They're going to be the ones, you know, you know, getting arrested, you know, in their clericals. And then there's going to be others who, you know, fight the system through, Uh, deep relationship building or, you know, kind of chipping away at things. You know, I always say there's, there's wrecking balls and there's stone hammers Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we can be both. And sometimes someone's better at one than the other. Um, I would describe you as a, as a stone hammer. Um, I think I would, I think I would describe, you know, dad as a wrecking ball, but he's, he's a wrecking ball in pretty much anything in his life. A lot of areas. A lot of areas. Um, And then for me, I think like with so many things, I'm kind of a mixture of the two. I think some people in my congregation would describe me as a wrecking ball. I think I preach in ways they maybe haven't necessarily heard 
in a long time. There's other people, especially my colleagues who probably think I don't do enough. Um, and that I'm just this stone hammer, not making any progress. So, um, I kind of reversed the order on you a little bit, but, um, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on that prophetic versus pastoral. Right. And I, you know, this wasn't something coming out of seminary that I thought about at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, really, really the, the biggest social issue and justice issue that I felt like I was dealing with right out of the gate was gender issues with being a woman in ministry. Yeah. So, you know, had to sort of deal with that and other things came along too. But I, um, I do think that every, um, every pastor and deacon is called to both to Mm -hmm. be, to be prophetic, to be pastoral, um, you know, the old challenge, the comfortable and comfort, the, those who are challenged and that's not right. It's, oh, afflict, the, say, com- aff- afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's what I meant. There it is. That was a there lot of is. C, there was a lot of C words. In there that were first too many version. C words on there. It was, just, it was too much for my little brain to handle in that moment. <laughs> that's so thank right. you. Thank you so, for correcting that. But as I look back on how I handle things, um, mm-hmm. and my, I mean, my preaching has certainly gotten a lot stronger in, I would say the last 15 years. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm much braver in what I say, but I also in sermons and pastoral conversation and so forth. But I have, as I look back, I think I have always approached all of these things as doing two things. One is in pastoral ministry, being prophetic, but coming at it from the side, like instead of a torpedo that, that blows the boat up, which some people do and they need to. Yeah. Um, I'm like the tugboat that's off to the side, just kind of gently sermon by sermon and Bible yeah. study by Bible study. Come on, um, buddy. Yeah. Come on, come buddy. On, buddy. Push, 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 you know, just kind of, just kind of doing that because I've always um, seen myself as a pastor for the long haul, wherever I am and, um, and shaping people over time. But I also believe in creating deep partnerships with other Christians, with pastors of other denominations um, and with, and with people who are not like ourselves, including um, you know, including historic African-American churches and, and mm-hmm. so forth. But I can tell you this one story about how I got kind of an aha moment and how some of this might work. So I was uh, uh, pastoring in Evanston, Illinois, which is just um, just barely north of Chicago. Yeah, sure and, is a border. Mm-hmm. And one of my really good uh, clergy friends was uh, Father Bob Oldershaw, who was at St. Nicholas. Father Bob. Father Bob. Love Father Bob. He and I, he was like, he's 20 years older than me. So he's 85 now, which is amazing. Crazy. And, um, but he and I were the co-presidents of the, um, the, uh, the Evanston Ministerial Alliance. And he always Mm -hmm. said, you're the pres and I'm the dent. But he was, he was like super pastor yeah, and uh, very, very prophetic. He always said, you know, I know what the rules are in my church, in my denomination. 
and I bend them as far as they will go, but I don't break them. Mm. And probably one of the things that he's known for the most, and I probably will not remember the details correctly, but he had um, uh, a young teenager in his congregation who was often acolyte. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that teenager um, murdered somebody. Oh, wow. And so this, of course, was a big deal. And Bob worked really hard to, uh, to reconcile those families Mm. and did a lot of visiting in the, in the jail and all of that kind of thing. And then that started, there was at one time, I guess in the 1990s, there was this whole million man March thing that went on in Washington. Yeah. And then, um, in Chicago, um, some folks put on, uh, it was, uh, I think it was a million mom march or something against gun violence. Yeah. And we were to gather downtown in Chicago in Grant Park, which is a very large area. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have a million people, but we had thousands and thousands yeah. of people who came to that. And so, you know, typical of those kinds of rallies, you know, there were speeches, there was some music, et cetera. Well, Bob and I were asked to do, he was going to do the closing prayer and I was going to do the closing benediction. Okay. So he and I are up on stage off to the side. And uh, so the MC announces us and says, you know, now we'd like to, to welcome Father Robert Oldershaw um, uh, who will do the benediction or, or the prayer and pastor Mary Anderson and the place erupted in applause, <laughs> but I knew that it wasn't me. They were applauding. It was him. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so yeah. don't get know, too big had, for your britches there, Anderson. <laughs> well, so, you know, and I thought, my goodness, whenever has the prayer and the benediction been applauded wildly? <laughs> I know. Usually it's like, oh God, make this short. I know. Lisa, then it'll be over. Right. Let us get out of here. But that was really, (laughs) uh, that was really an amazing moment for me. And I realized that all of the, you know, sort of all of that hard, faithful work that he had done Mm -hmm. was just so appreciated. Yeah. He probably had people in his parish who didn't like the fact that he was involved too much in political stuff. But he just kept on being super pastor and kept on being prophetic. And Mm -hmm. because, you know, he was a guy who, or a pastor, who probably had been in that large parish around the table, kitchen table of just about everybody. And, you know, when you do that, you build a lot of trust. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to cash a little bit of that in. You know, if you just continue to love people and, you know, you know, not, not go around telling them, you know, that they're jerks, that they're wrong, you know, or whatever. doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Right. And I would certainly tell somebody if they said, you know, I think all Hispanic people should be booted out of this country. You know, I would tell them, I think you're wrong, Yeah. but let's, but let's keep talking about that. Right. And, um, you know, and, le- and let's pray about that. You know, when you push people away and, and I have pushed toxic people away. Um, but if you're just a person that's trying to understand, or maybe isn't very well educated on the issues, 
or has mental illness or whatever it might be, you know, Mm -hmm. I can keep you under that big tent of the church. Yeah. Um, But yeah, like I said, but, you know, truly toxic people, you know, they need to, they, if they're a cancer in the body, they need to go. I mean, and they typically will leave on their own. I mean, I, I, I've certainly, I've certainly seen it in different congregations. I've experienced it myself where, Mm -hmm. you know, you speak a certain truth and they are so against it that they just leave. And I know that for a long time, you know, I would hear from a lot of pastors like, well, you know, we don't want to offend anyone to the point where they leave because everyone is welcome and we need to accept people's point of views, which I agree with to a point. But, and, and I've seen this a lot in like meme form around the internet right now, where it says, I'm more than willing to, you know, stay friends with someone that I don't agree with, but if their views are anti the humanity of other people, mm-hmm. that's not something I'm willing to disagree on. That's just, or that I'm willing to kind of agree to disagree, I guess I should mm-hmm. say it's like, you know, and there are certain mentalities that, that are very anti-gospel in some ways, but are used as gospel. And and we've got to call those out. We've got to call those out. I mean, and one of them, particularly with it being pride month, the amount of churches that have hurt members of the LGBTQ plus community is shocking. And I feel like half of my job, if not more, is apologizing on behalf of whatever institutional church mm-hmm. told someone they were not good enough or they were going to hell or, you know, the hate, the sin, love, the sinner bullshit that you hear all the time. I mean, that's typical. I, I shared something on Facebook and I was actually really shocked at, at how big the response was to it, but I was at the dog park recently. And at this particular dog park, it's a, it's a pretty popular place in town it's mm-hmm. uh it's 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 the only dog park with a bar so you know a lot of people that hang is out unusual there. yeah and uh and it's a it's a spot where there's a lot of regulars you know you have to have a membership whatever and so I was sitting at a table with some folks that I I just kind of know through the dog park and and there was this woman there who identified with the queer community um and uh, you know we're all just kind of talking different conversations going at once and at one point she said something kind of jokingly she was like well you know god hates me anyway so and and i i like like snapped around she was sitting to my she said sitting to my left and And said, get over here no i I mean i i went from kind of like laughing and giggling on to the conversation to like getting dead serious and i looked her square in the eye i probably freaked her out a little bit but i looked her square in the eye and i said god does not hate you i said some very misguided terrible people who claim to be you know speaking for god have tried to convince you of that right and she just kind of like laughed awkwardly and like looked away but i just i hear that so often of like well i'm going to hell anyway so you know da, da, da. right and it, and it's just like it it's it's heartbreaking that you know we are part of and really representing this institution that has hurt so many people um and you know and we we just can't forget pride month especially is the celebration of the protest at Stonewall, which was led mm-hmm. primarily by transgender women of color. 
And as the church, you know, we should, we should support. I mean, I think what's the harm in flying a pride flag outside of our churches, you know, especially in the month of June, if not all the time, but I mean, what that community especially is so grounded in the ideas of love and acceptance, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what the church should be grounded in. Um, and yet we, the church as a whole has completely isolated that group of people. And, you know, there are churches that have done a hell of a good job, um, being allies and, and, and creating space, but it's a real shame that that is the exception to the rule. Um, you know, all, all the time on all these, you know, a lot of groups I'm on, on Facebook, I'll, uh, you'll see someone from the community say, you know, I'm looking for a church in Chattanooga, you know, does anybody know of one that's like accepting to LGBTQ people? And it's just like, mm. oh my God, like I, it just, it's just so sad to me that, you know, that's like a prerequisite. Like people have to ask that instead of just knowing wherever they walk in, they're going to be accepted and not just welcomed, but affirmed. Right. right. Cause it's, it's one thing to say like, oh yeah, you're welcome here, but to actually affirm someone and bring them into your community is a whole different ball of wax. You know, I think that when faith leaders and people who are driven by their faith show up to things like protests or speak up, even if it's just, you know, around a dinner table with somebody or having coffee with somebody, um, you know, not everything has to be, has to end with, you know, changing your Facebook profile picture to your mugshot in a clerical. Um, But, you know, I think that every piece of work we as church leadership can do to start showing that as a whole, at least the ELCA, which the ELCA has incredibly liberal what's the word I'm looking for policies mm-hmm. church-wide, you social know, statements. I, social statements. Exactly. Thank you. There could be some issues that we take a stronger stance on, but I think in terms of a lot of other mainline Protestant, um, you know, church bodies, we're doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a shame that individual congregations can still uh, ignore that. I mean, there, there are still plenty of, of churches out there that have just said, yeah, you know, they passed that thing in 2009, but uh, you know, we're we're just still not okay with it or still makes us feel icky. And it's just yeah. like well, what? and I think I think one way of participating in protest movements within within your own community. And of course, nowadays that doesn't just mean gathering people inside your building, but like having a Zoom event or something. Yeah. Um so, you know, taking um taking opportunities of uh, recognitions that are already out there like pride month. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're not, maybe you're not the uh, church person or the pastor who's going to, to uh, uh, say, let's build a float for the pride parade. Right. Right. (laughs) But you might attend it Mm -hmm. and you might, uh, you might decide to have a zoom support group for parents just for the month of june you know start that way Mm -hmm. for parents of gay and lesbian and transgender children yeah like p flag yeah like p flag and so um because those folks are 
they're in the congregation. I mean, they, oh, they yeah. just, and they're in the community. They just mm-hmm. feel like it's something that they don't share with other people. And yeah. so you, as the church leader, if you say it out loud, if you make it happen and say, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to do this. Oh, December 1st is World AIDS Day. Um, everybody who, you know, we're inviting everybody who's lost a loved one to AIDS to come together for this luncheon or, you know, yeah. just cre- create, op- and that's how you can be sneaky. That's how, that's what the tugboat thing is doing off to the right, side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Little stone hammer. Clink, 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 so, clink, 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 clink. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I just wish that, you know, church leaders would think about those opportunities more than they mm-hmm. do. But, you know, very often you have to be, and this is where, you know, it also takes some bravery. You know, you have to be the one to say, why don't we gather people to do this? And especially now with Zoom, um, where somebody in your local community can say, oh, we're going to do this this Zooming thing uh, every Tuesday night in the month of June for people who have children who LGBTQ. Yeah. And then they invite you know, uh, their sister-in-law to also zoom in and she's in a whole right. other state. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the beauty. That's the beauty of doing that. Um, Absolutely. You know, we've talked before about kind of the levels of like patience between different generations. I think something I see in the millennial generation is a level of exposed anger that yeah. I don't always see from, you know, boomer colleagues. I think, I think being anti-establishment was very much a outlier for the boomer generation. Whereas being anti-establishment is like millennial 101. Very few millennials are kind of working for the man and happy about it. Um, Or if they are, they're working for the man and also like trying to dismember that it at the same time. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from each other in that I think, and I, speaking as a millennial, I think learning a little bit of institutional patience mm-hmm. is, is something that my generation could use. But I also think that we can teach, uh, older generations and younger generations that there are times where it just has to be hard stop wrecking ball mode, like, mm-hmm this is, it is not okay that there is still this kind of, you know, institutional, this and institutional, that whatever institutional ism, you know, you want to name there's, there's so many. Um, and, and for me, I mean, I, I get very impatient as well. I mean, I've toned down sermons the night before, or even like while I'm giving them because in my own head, while I was studying that scripture and I feel really passionate about, you know, issue X, uh, I'll go, I'll just, I'll just really hammer it, you know? And then as I'm giving the sermon and looking out on the crowd at blank faces, um, I'm kind of like, maybe I should dial this back a little bit, (laughs) which is so sad. You suddenly see somebody that you kind of didn't expect would be there. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe because they haven't been there in a really long time, or you thought they'd left the congregation. Right. And suddenly (laughs) they're back and you're just like, no, I just can't say that. Yeah, this person can't say that right it. now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, or sometimes for me, I'll see someone in in the congregation, and I'll think they would appreciate hearing this from from the pulpit. Right. You know, I'll see someone who 
um, you know, might identify as LGBTQ plus. And I know for a fact that they have not heard from a pulpit in a long time. If ever you are valued and appreciated here and God loves you for who you are. Um, you know, I, I try to live by the rule of like, if you can say what just one person needed to hear that day, it's a successful mm-hmm. sermon and there's going to be I think times. That's a, I think that's a great, that's a great goal. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I kind of tend to say, all right, I'm going to try and please more people than I piss off. But there are also days where I'm also preaching to myself. So I think, mm-hmm. I think, so let me, so we had my internship congregation had a, had a interesting experience with the intern before me. Uh, she was someone who was very explosive um, in her preaching and in her desire to see uh, certain justices and things like that within the church. She wanted to see the church moving much faster than um, I think its legs could carry it. And I respect her on that a lot. Her, She's no longer in the ministry in any way. I don't think last I heard, at least she wasn't, but I think a lot of it was, she was disheartened by even being at a very liberal congregation, uh, having such an issue with speaking out about human sexuality and LGBTQ plus issues. And she actually preached a sermon that, um, ended her internship. Now Mm. there, there are, there are, you know, different stories. Some people said she quit because of the response she got from that sermon and other people say she was fired because of that sermon. Either way, she didn't finish her internship. And, you know, walking into that, it was very easy to see the wounds that it caused. And I ended up listening to that sermon because they recorded and posted all their sermons and her, that one was still up. Mm -hmm. Um, I listened to it and, and quite honestly, I didn't necessarily hear a problem with it. I actually think the exegesis that she did on that particular text and the link she made to LGBTQ issues was brilliant. It wow. was um, it was the story of Jesus um, exercising the demon from the synagogue. Mm-hmm. And she basically asked the question, what is the demon we need to exercise from our churches? And then she named, you know, um, homophobia as one of them. Now, where I think she could have done better was she had a very accusatory tone. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of you're doing this wrong. You know, mm-hmm. you need to change you this, you that I'm an expert on it and I can help you change. Whereas I think we're none of us are as woke as we think we are. Right. Um, and I think and you got to come at stuff from a humble attitude. Yeah. And I think, fly. you know, if we're going to preach the body of Christ, we need to include ourselves in the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And in that, you know, as part of the problem and part of the possible solution. And so I, I did kind of feel bad because as I was sitting there listening to this sermon of hers, I thought to myself, I've preached almost this exact same thing, but I was never asked to leave. And and I'm not saying that to, to say like, oh, I'm a better preacher or I approach people better, but I, I make a very conscious effort to use we language, you know, when talking about things that we need to change, because I recognize that even if I might be a little bit ahead in the knowledge I've worked for in certain issues, I'm still a part 
of the institution that is the church. And the church, big C, has a lot of changing to do to really get back to what the gospel is. We have very much strayed from, Mm -hmm. you know, the actions of Christ. Well, just like I hate calling him Christ. I'm I'm gonna call him Jesus. I hate last name. I want to be on a first name basis with Jesus. Jesus. Christ sounds too too formal. Sorry, Jesus, buddy. You know, well, but but that's the same thing where we started this conversation in um, protesting in Protestant and mm-hmm. 16th century Reformation. Um, I sometimes think of it as um, the gospel or the, the church institution, maybe being like a silver ball. And over time, silver balls get tarnished. Yeah. And- you have to polish them with something for for the beauty to shine through, and I think right. to me that's kind of my one of my Im- images of what we do in these protesting. Protesting to me polishes the tarnish off. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so you know we we always have to be looking for when are we called to do that? Yeah, um, and in I mean, some we- ways it's all the time, but. Oh yeah. And I mean, if we're going to, you know, and going back to something you said earlier about, you know, the white church, especially not wanting to mix, you know, church and Mm. politics or church and protest or whatever you want to call it. I mean, but then on the same, within the same breath, we'll say, well, WWJD. And it's like, (laughs) what would Jesus do? Um, Jesus Mm -hmm. would be anti-establishment and Jesus would welcome the stranger and Jesus would know when to be prophetic and when to be pastoral. I mean, Jesus was so pastoral, you know, I mean, he was eating with tax collectors who are, who were like the epitome of the establishment. He was also eating with sex workers. He was Mm -hmm. meeting, he was meeting with people he wasn't supposed to be meeting with. And he was a pastor to them. And then he also guided those who were confused, cough, cough, his disciples, <laughs> who he like openly teased for being idiots, but he still shepherded them along and showed them kind of, okay, this is how we help people. And this is how we make change. Um, and then he also knew when civil disobedience was necessary. I mean, something that actually drove me crazy in seminary, because I've, I've, I've typically lean more towards pastoral side, even though I, I can, you know, be prophetic when I want to be, but, you know, I, I seminary was the first time I was really exposed to, uh, colleagues, church leaders, people trying to be church leaders, seminarians who always led with the idea of protest and civil disobedience as the first mm-hmm. step you know, or, or oh, it was always a fight. It was always like, who do we need to talk to about this? And, and, and it was always led with such anger. And, um, and then, I mean, it, you know, I'm not, I don't want to generalize that too much, but that was kind of my experience and what I saw. And, and the thing I always heard was, well, Jesus flipped tables and so should we. Mm-hmm. And while I agree with that to a point, I always kind of follow that up by saying, yeah, but it was a really specific table at a really (laughs) specific time. He wasn't just like going through synagogues throughout the middle East being like (laughs) table flip, table flip. You know, (laughs) it was like, he knew that purging that temple at that time and place would get him arrested. And he knew his crucifixion needed to be as public as possible. And what's more public than Jerusalem during Passover. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Right. So I think, you know, and that's, that's, that completely preaches towards the discernment that Dr. Perry was talking about. And so I think, you know, when we see, well, and when I'm, we see I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad Richard Perry said that because in some yeah. ways, I think there was one point in his life where he would not have said that. Yeah. <laughs> it might have been, might oh, have yeah. been the sharp, sharp edges have been filed down a little bit, but believe me, they'll still stab you. Oh yeah. He, he, uh, he was still, uh, causing good trouble. Um, even, even mm-hmm. when he was retired, I mean, he, you can't stop that train. You can't stop no, the Richard Perry train. Stop that train. <laughs> well, that'll he, preach. I mean, he was great. That'll preach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, great combo mom, much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And thanks Elise. And we do have, uh, some folks have, sent emails to mm-hmm. our email address you're on mute pod at gmail.com correct yeah right yeah gmail.com yeah and so um we've had some suggestions which in some ways were already on our list but it's good to hear folks saying you know can we have mm-hmm. a conversation about ministry and motherhood and parenthood yeah. can yeah. we have a conversation about um about dating when you're mm-hmm. a church leader and I have so, so much to say so much to say dating I, <laughs> as a pastor I, I, I may just have to stop you after three hours or something yeah oh that soapbox is coming out for sure um <laughs> so we, yeah. we have we have those things and um I was just uh, having a conversation with um Um, A woman that I know who just retired, not a pastor, actually a very successful businesswoman, uh, Mm -hmm. Nancy, Uh, she and a few members of her family uh, several decades ago started a catering business, which is now really huge in Chicago. And full circle, she she was good friends with Uncle Ty. Uncle Ty. They started Mm -hmm. in the hospitality industry together in Florida. Yeah. And so she was pretty much the CEO of that catering company. And so has Mm -hmm. done a lot with regard to leadership development, leadership issues, how to make hard decisions, how to deal with difficult people. And um, she and I've been talking a lot over the last several days about, um, you know, some of the ways in which the business community and how they deal with leadership issues and being a CEO is very similar to what pastors have to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she's convinced not because I'd like for us to talk about it at some point, kind of leadership strategies. And also she was giving some good advice um, for, you know, how do you come into a congregation as the pastor when you're 28 years old and you're the youngest person in church leadership. Yep. So you're tell me you're, about it. <laughs> right. So you're the you're the CEO and everybody on your council is over 60. Yeah. Um, so um she and I are talking more about that and she recommended highly a book that I'm going to get that she used a lot for her staff called The First 90 Days. I I haven't heard of it, but I'm I'm yeah. going to order it. And after I read it, I'd like for us to have a conversation about some of those issues, which I'm sure we could spread out over over a few ep- episodes for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, just keep telling me what you'd like to do. 
And, um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we've heard, we've heard from a few people. We'd love to hear from more of you, uh, whether you reach out to us on Facebook, um, in our personal accounts, or if you email you're on mute pod at gmail.com. Uh, and I know a lot of you might be screaming at your, whatever device you're listening on of like, get a guest or like, why are you only, you know, this and that, you know, we're kind of gaining some steam here. And so we definitely plan uh, later on with some of these conversations to have some guests on for different perspectives. Um, Who knows, maybe we can even get the famous Richard Perry to come on and talk to us about about protest part two. And, and a lot of these issues are, are well, well worth second, third, fourth episode. So just because we've talked about being a woman in ministry once does not mean we will not touch on that again. Um, there are so many intersectionalities to touch on in terms of with that. So uh, mm-hmm. fear not if um, if you feel like you missed your chance to, to give us mm-hmm. some stories about your experiences, you have not. Uh, we're always wanting to get those. And, and a big thank you to the folks who have um, sent us some emails and questions. It's much appreciated. And yeah, we're, and the, we're and definitely going to incorporate that, have, that. Right. And the folks that have sent us, you know, kind of a big thumbs up and appreciation mm-hmm. of what we're we're doing in this, you know, this is only our third episode. So thank yeah. you for your for your patience as we figure some things out. We want to make sure that we can do it before we invite guests on. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, and I we're still we're still primarily on Spotify. We're working on other platforms. I should say I'm working on other platforms. Hey, uh, I'm supporting boom- you though financially. <laughs> the boomers just along for the ride, people. Um, but uh, I I get to go spend hours editing this episode uh, while she gets to go have dinner with our with our friend. Um, just kidding. Just kidding, mom. You're, you're working. You're working so hard. Uh, I so, am actually so brave. Uh, but uh, we will try to get on other platforms. But uh, please continue to listen to us on Spotify and like us, uh, review us. It helps us kind of get more uh, visibility and get some other folks uh, listening because we want to we want to try and, and spread these conversations as, as far and wide as we can and start new ones. That's right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks so much, everybody, and have a great week. And we'll uh, we'll be back with episode four as soon as we can. Bye. <laughs> Bye.